Good evening, everybody, and welcome. We'll go ahead and get started. We are delighted that you found your way through a rainstorm that seems to be shutting down Portlanders who want to know better. The news has just been crazy. Um, my name is uh, Karen Eifler, and together with my colleague, Father Charlie Gordon, we are co-directors of the Garabena Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture here at the university. Uh, we're starting our second year in that um, capacity. And if you haven't uh, been to Garabena Center events, I just want to run you through a couple of drills that you'll hear next time you come back, because I know there will be a next time. If you are a K-12 teacher, one of the things that we are able to do is offer you free PDUs at no cost to you. And all you have to do, and if you're a teacher, you know what PDU means. And if you don't, um, you're not in the club and I can't tell you. Uh, but if you are a K-12 teacher and you want those PDUs, uh, you can sign up at the table where you probably picked up your program on the way in. That's one. Uh, Jamie Powell, our program manager, and Father Charlie and I are considering just bringing our sleeping bags to the center because we have a lot of great programming coming up over the next couple of weeks. I think we have uh, eight events in the next nine days, so we're, why go home? Um, and we have uh, flyers about that and our entire season uh, in the Pilot Navigator series. So if you, if you like what you see tonight, and I know you will, um, make sure that you pick up one of those calendars for the, the whole year, actually. And then finally, we also have an email list that we have quite an outreach going on um, in the digital age. We have several podcast series, and if you would like to receive those, those are absolutely free, and there's no, uh, there's no advertising or anything like that. Um, it's also a way to keep in touch with what's going on at the Garabena Center. If that sounds intriguing to you, we also have an email sign-up list, and if you use really good handwriting on your way out, uh, you can do that, and we will put you on that list right away because you don't want to miss anything. Uh, I want to thank uh, Jamie Powell, who is the queen of logistical arrangements, and uh, she's the one who thought up all that great food and drink that you're enjoying. And the next thanks I want to offer is to John and Patricia Beckman. They are longtime patrons of the university who had a bold idea a few years ago that in a world that's as bruised as our world, um, we need to laugh more. And so they came to the University of Portland and made a pitch that they would like, they would like to use the amazing resources of the faculty and the staff and students uh, at the University of Portland in every area, calculus, biochemistry, theater, education, uh, to, think, to think of ways that we could use humor as what they say, a gentle sideways weapon against the forces of evil. And they sort of triple dog dared the university to put its great minds and hearts to work in coming up with programming. And as far as I know, this is one of the very first um, public trials of that idea. So I want to thank the Beckmans for the resources and for the idea for tackling humor. Because when you uh, think about blackness and outrageous sins against humanity in the 20th century. It doesn't take um, too long for the Nazis to rise to the top of the list. And so this is kind of a scary project to start with, but we, we think really big at the University of Portland and uh, in the Garabena Center. So we're, uh, it's been funny in the last couple of weeks as I've talked to Brian and Nicole, who will be uh, taking on the lion's share of tonight. Brian has said, 
this is a concert with a little bit of lecturing. And Nicole has said, this is a lecture with a little bit of music thrown in. So is it a concert? Is it a lecture? Um, the truth is that it's actually something in between, and it's something that could only happen at the University of Portland, where we are nimble and agile enough for three professors to be enjoying punch at a Christmas party and to say, there's this humor project underway. Is there something that we could do that would, that would draw in people and that would take the black, one of the blackest marks in human history and somehow find humor around that as a weapon against that blackness? And a couple of glasses of punch into that conversation, um, and because that's the kind of people uh, that they are, Nicole and Brian said, sure we can do that. We're excited to do that and we're terrified to do that. And that's why we're, we're here tonight. So we're lucky that two of the really special people on our campus are Dr. Brian Ells and Dr. Nicole Hannock. Um, Dr. Ells is in the Department of History and has been. He doesn't like me to say he's history. He's in the Department of History um, for, since 2002, teaching really popular courses in medicine, um, medicine and technology in the 20th century. He can usually work beer into just about any historical topic, uh, world civilizations, um, all kinds of things around technology. And his specialty is really modern Germany. And he teaches a course that always fills up in the first eight minutes on the theological perspectives on the Holocaust. So I knew that that was an area that he had some background in. And uh, he's also delighted, I understand, to be serving now as the chair of the history department on, on top of that. Dr. Nicole Hannig is in her third year at the University of Portland. Um, and she is a world-class soprano, and she is in demand all over the world as a soprano in operas and in recitals. And in her not even three years yet, she has more than tripled the number of students who come to the University of Portland to study voice, and that's a remarkable impact. So is it a lecture or is it a concert? I want to get off the stage and let you decide and be challenged and stretched and outraged and enlightened and I hope, I hope eventually uplifted at uh, an event, um, humor as a weapon against fascism. And I turn you over now to Dr. Brian Ells. Thank you. Actually, moments ago, we decided that we would open with a song. So, and why not? Um, oh yes, I have to make sure the mic is not on. Okay, excellent, excellent. And, and uh, I wasn't going to speak, but I will say one thing. So this song is by um, Schoenberg, and those of you who know him, we think of really wonky, bizarre, strange music, and that's the majority of it. I find it quite beautiful, but um, this was uh, his attempt at some cabaret music. And the thing that I love is that he painted this specifically for the cover of this collection. So we get Schoenberg, Schoenberg as a composer, and if you look at this, as artist as well. All right, so this is Gigalette. Oh, <laughs> 
Thank you for all for coming. Um, I'm Brian Ellis. That's uh, Dr. Nicole Hannig. Um, this was, as uh, Karen suggested, a, an interesting idea when you'd had a couple of glasses of Christmas punch. But as it got closer, the actual implications of putting this together uh, did sort of rear their heads. But I think we can uh, uh, get through some very interesting material here um, and suggest ways in which I hope no gigantic overarching human lessons, but the idea of people making it through horrible events and at the same time being able to somehow not merely laugh but hopefully use laughter against the target of uh, or against the cause of those horrible events. Um, you have, I hope, a copy of the lyrics of the four songs we're going to sing. Uh, I was instructed in order to get help that I needed to thank fulsomely uh, the people who helped me translate the march into the Third Reich. Um, the internet connects, contains many things but an English translation of that song isn't one of them. So uh, with the, uh, uh, the generous assistance of Drs. Alexandra Hill and Laurie McClary, I was able to make this actually make some sense. Although I forwarded a version of it that was a little bit early, uh, the s second stanza there, the Fuhrer says, just don't run around in rags. Uh, a bit of love makes the path half as hard. So if you can scratch out difficult and write hard. Um, but you don't have to, but just that that's the, the proper translation. But anyway, thanks to uh, the German program. Okay, what I'm going to do here just tonight is to give you a sense of what um, we're looking at here. I'm not going to tell any Nazi jokes about Jews. That's Nobody needs to hear those. Um, I'm not going to tell you any of uh, Goebbels' jokes about um, uh, subversion. And I'm, I'm not going to go into, though, the book I, I referenced did deal with this a little bit. Uh, Jewish reactions with humor. Um, I think that that's a serious enough topic we should really devote something self-standing to that. So tonight I really am just going to be talking about the way ordinary average Germans, with one very prominent exception, um, talked about or joked about uh, the political situation between 1930 or so and 1945. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Weimar era humor, so before Hitler comes to power. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about what humor is like once the Nazis do take control in 1933. And then I want to say a few things about what it's like during the war itself. 
um, because those are, we, we all like to think in threes, and so that uh, helps. I, I hope you also noticed um, both this song and the next one are, uh, involve the cultural work of really prominent artists and composers and, 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 and cultural figures in Weimar Germany. And I hope you noticed, um, if you actually read the text of Gigolette, um, this is about a relationship that is, um, let's say, maybe a little bit more entrepreneurial than romantic. Um, that's, so Arnold Schoenberg is writing kind of edgy music for the cabaret, for the stage. So this is a picture of, uh, kind of washed out one, but of one of the famous cabarets in Berlin, uh, the Cabaret de Comica. Uh, where a lot of really big acts um, uh, got their, did their work and had a pretty popular audience. But again, think about somebody like Schoenberg or Hans Eisler or Bertolt Brecht writing music for places like this, popular entertainment. I mean, that's not something you see in the United States in 2014. Uh, and so there's this combination between high art and popular entertainment um, that's really, I think, kind of interesting and, and the, the cabaret era of the 20s itself um, uh, is really just vibrant with all kinds of entertainment riches. Uh, and again, connected with the, the highest of the high, uh, in the art world at least. Um, people in the cabarets would poke fun at everything. Uh, politics, society, conservatives, liberals, communists, Stalin, and of course Hitler. Uh, and Hitler as a political figure is a kind of irrelevant one for most of the 20s until the Great Depression comes. But even after his political party, his movement starts to get popular, uh, after 1929, a lot of Germans, uh, not just educated Germans, see him as kind of a crazy buffoon. Uh, he's got an Austrian accent. Um, he didn't even become a German citizen until 1930, um, so he was a foreigner. Um, <coughs> his brown shirt followers, the party army, the Sturmabteilung, I refer to it as the SA, um, they're, they're thugs who go around beating people up. Um, many Germans just have great difficulty taking the guy seriously, which is one of the reasons why he's able to achieve as much as, as he did. Um, a lot of Germans just find the Nazi movement itself buffoonish and silly and crazy and dangerous to be sure, but uh, something that it's hard to imagine them coming uh, to power. Uh, it's the other thing that, that a lot of people seem to believe in the 1920s and early 1930s is that one of the most obnoxious aspects of the Nazi party that should keep them farthest from the doors of power is their rabid, crazy anti-Semitism, blaming Jews for everything that's wrong. Um, and there are artists engaging with this as well. I'll tell you one of these responses. In Vienna, a Jewish cabaretist named Karl Farkas was doing a comedy routine and in 1932. Uh, an anti-Semite uh, shouted out from the audience, interrupting his act, daring him to find a rhyme for Jewish thief. So Farkas did. He went over to a vase, took a rose out, said, here's the rose, here's the leaf, here's the Jew, and there is the thief. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to turn this around. Um, so again, we've got the pillars of entertainment involved in uh, the, the uh, popular entertainment, and the next song we're going to actually sing I'm not singing it. Um, <laughs> I'll tap my feet. Der Marsch ins Dritte Reich is written by, uh, so the, the words are by Bertolt Brecht, already, he was politically active to be sure, uh, but uh, you know, one of the more prominent uh, playwrights and, and, and authors of Weimar Germany, and the man who wrote the tune 
Hans Eisler uh, was already a prominent composer. He'll continue to be a pro prolific composer, and perhaps one of his more famous works is he actually wrote the National Anthem of East Germany in 1949, Auf Erstanden aus Ruinen, uh, Resurrected Out of the Ruins. Um, the ironic thing, given this song's title and content, is a long way to a Third Reich, making fun of Hitler uh, and the Nazis. It was per first performed in January of 1933, about a week and a half before Hitler was named chancellor. So it wasn't actually as long of a way as some people thought. But the, just the term Third Reich, which Hitler uses, a lot of Germans found crazy. It's sort of a millennial kind of term. It, 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 Germany was still technically a Reich. So when he uses this term, that's another thing this song is making fun of. So if you'd like to uh, yeah. take it away. Something I noticed when I was learning this song is that the, the chord structure in most of the melody is identical to, it's a long way to Tipperary. So I think you may recognize the tune actually in this kind of making fun of Hitler type song. All right. <laughs> Der Führer sagt, jetzt kommt der letzte Winter, nur jetzt nicht schlapp gemacht, ihr müsst marschieren. Der Führer fährt voran im Zylinder, marsch, marsch, ihr dürft die Führung nicht verlieren. Es ist ein langer Weg zum dritten Reich, man muss nicht glauben, wie sich das Der Führer sagt, nur nicht in Lumpen laufen. Er hat dir schon gesagt, der Industrie. Wir wollen neue Uniformen kaufen. Der Hauptmann Röhm liebt uns nicht ohne die. Es ist ein langer Weg zum dritten Reich. Why I suggested that actually after 
Dr. Hill's recommendation uh, hard is maybe more appropriate than difficult. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, they would, there was a lot of rumor about uh, rampant homosexuality uh, in the Sturmabteilung, in the SA, both before and after the Nazis took power. Um, and one of, this is, I promise, the only slightly dirty joke I'm going to tell tonight. Um, there was a saying by the early, let's say, 35, 36, that uh, uh, inside every Hitler youth was an SA man. <laughs> Either behind or inside. <laughs> You, you could say that, and the government would be like, wait a minute. <laughs> All right. Well, the Nazis talk about the seizure of power um, in their own self-mythology uh, in January of 1933. Uh, and that's not really true at all. What happens is poli politicians who should have known better uh, think that uh, Hitler, because he is a buffoon, if they finally name him to power, his Nazi delegates in the Reichstag will vote for anything that they want, and they'll back him into a corner and turn him into a gibbering fool. Um, that's not what happens. Uh, he's named chancellor. Uh, the, the government becomes nominally Nazi, but he hasn't established a dictatorship yet. And if you could hit the next slide. Um, that takes work, and you need an excuse to suspend the Constitution to build a dictatorship and that excuse, by an enormous conveniently uh, coincidence, is provided in February of 1933, February 27, 1933, when the Reichstag building, the seat of the German assembly, spontaneously combusts, uh, bursts into flame in something like 17 different places all at the same time. Um, this is immediately seized upon Goering and Goebbels and Hitler all troop on down to watch the building burn, and the next day, they put together a sweeping bunch of legislation that will uh, end up suspending the Constitution uh, and allowing the police to have virtually untrammeled ability to arrest anyone, that, to arrest anyone they want. Um, this seems so convenient that uh, some people think that maybe it wasn't the communists after all that set the fire. Maybe it was the Nazis themselves. They either blame the SA, uh, so a joke like this. Question, what's the difference between a regular army unit and the SA? Answer. In the army, they say, ready, get set, fire. In the SA, they say, get ready, set the fire. <laughs> Others blame Hermann Göring, who will go on to become the uh, head of the Luftwaffe, uh, was already Hitler's right-hand man, and he was, at the time, he'd been named minister president of the largest state, Prussia. The joke went, uh, on the evening of the 27th, Göring's assistant arrives out of breath at his office and yells, state minister, the Reichstag is on fire. Goering looks at the clock, shakes his head in surprise, and says, what, already? <laughs> well, they jumped the gun a bit. Um, now, again, you're laughing in a, in a period, though. Uh, you're making jokes like this. When jokes are already dangerous enough to get you arrested by the SA or by the Gestapo or by the police, um, and that does happen to thousands. They're arrested and flung into concentration camps, not just for telling jokes, of course, but uh, for being political opponents of the regime. What happens next, once the dictatorship is established, is the consolidation of power. In German, it's referred to as Gleichschaltung, which actually uh, is a term from uh, mechanical engineering referring to, uh, it's used in, in many ways, but one term that's familiar to us is when you have a manual transmission that has uh, synchronization, so you don't have to double clutch to go from here to here. That's what that term means in German. So getting everything to turn, a Nazi term, they loved using euphemisms. Uh, don't believe anything the Nazis say. Now, this is a problem for people who are already 
dangerous, subversive comedians, once the police state is established, they have to decide, do they continue to try to do humor that criticizes the government and risk arrest? Um, or do they uh, try to tone their act down? Uh, or do they flee the country? And comedians and subversive types take all of the above approaches. If you could go to the next slide, that would be great. One of the other things about the Nazi state from 1933 on is the existence of places that aren't actually prisons. They're known as concentration camps, Konzentrationslager, and the inmates in them aren't technically prisoners. They're people who have been picked up outside of the ordinary judicial system and flung into these places. Uh, they're under technically protective custody. And that may sound like a nice term, again, the Nazis. Um, it actually means you're not being protected from anything. Society is being protected from you. So protective custody, it's an a, a, it's a extra legal situation. So there's no term of imprisonment. You're there for as long as the state wants you there. And you'll be re released whenever you feel like it. Or what, not when you feel, when they feel like it. Um, that can lead to some interesting situations, which people were aware of. Um, so one of the jokes about Dachau. Two men meet up on the street, and the first one says, nice to see you out again. How was the concentration camp? The second man replies, hey, it was great. Mornings we got breakfast in bed with our choice of freshly ground coffee or cocoa. We did some sports. Then there was a three-course lunch with soup and meat and dessert. After that, we played some board games, and we took a nap. And after dinner, they showed movies. The first man can't believe his ears. Wow, and the lies they've been spreading about that place. Hey, I was just talking to Meyer, who also spent some time there. He told me horror stories. The second man nods seriously and says, that's why he got sent back. <laughs> Another joke. Uh, what do you got for new jokes? Oh, three months in Dachau. One of the big early concentration camps. Funny, but <clears throat> maybe not. In terms of professional humor and, uh, uh, and entertainment, one of the safest things to do was to turn away from politics altogether, especially if you were a group like the Comedian Harmonists, who contained some Jewish members. Stay away from political topics entirely and sing about nature or the weather or whatever. And that's what this next song sort of represents, a turn away completely from politics by a group that will not end up surviving the Nazi persecution. They get dissolved. It's a great movie from a couple of years ago. But this is one of their hits that has nothing to do with politics at all. So ruhig und ich fühle 
Germany that many people don't know and that lots of Germans would prefer that people didn't know in the years after 1945 is that the Nazis make no secret about the concentration camps. Everybody knows they're there. This is a national newspaper showing from 1936. In this edition, we're going to look at the camp at Dachau, but they're portrayed as work camps where the lazy learn how to do a job and the asocials learn how to be part of society, the actual lawlessness of what's going on inside of them never mentioned. And again, as that joke, that's not just a joke. That would happen. You're in protective custody in the concentration camp until you're not, but you can be always thrown back in. So anyone who's had the experience and survived of being in Dachau. Now, we're not talking here about death camps. That comes after the, uh, uh, the war begins. But these are places with very high death rates uh, and astonishing brutality against the prisoners. So people in the town of Dachau know full well that there's a camp there that it's horrible. They don't know necessarily the details of what's going on. <clears throat> um, so some professional comedians decide to keep working and to remain relevant by dealing with political subjects in as careful a way as possible. Uh, one of them is named Werner Fink. Uh, he was a performer at the, uh, uh, another cabaret known as the Catacombs. Uh, was enormously popular but because of his popularity and his obvious willingness to go right up to the line talking about political subjects, there were always Gestapo agents or Nazi cultural monitors uh, in the audience, uh, sometimes very obviously taking notes. Um, he was still working in 1935, uh, but he would do things like lean over and say, do you want me to slow down? Uh, are you able to keep up? Uh, I can repeat that bit if you need to. Um, <clears throat> this really got him in trouble, and he would actually end up uh, being arrested in 1936 uh, and sent to a concentration camp for a time. Uh, he'll be released. Uh, he performs again in 1939, again gets in trouble, and is informed by somebody in early October that he's probably going to get arrested again and thrown in the concentration camp. By this point, the war is on. There's no way for him to emigrate. So he comes up with a brilliant solution. He enlists in the Army um, and is safe from the SS. Uh, he ends up getting, becoming a radio officer, survives the war, uh, and wrote his memoirs afterwards. He said in his memoirs, when he was uh, finally arrested, the Gestapo agents asked him, do you have any weapons? And he said, uh, why? Do I need any? <laughs> go to the next. 
This man is also one of the more famous figures of resistance of a sort. Uh, he is the Bishop of Münster, uh, Clemens von Galen, from a very old aristocratic German family. And he, like a lot of Catholic prelates, uh, was horrified by the, uh, the way that the Nazi government was moving against people's civil rights, civil rights um, and against minorities. Um, he would go on to become incredibly famous by giving a sermon in 1940 condemning the euthanasia program that was then killing German uh, uh, residents of asylums and uh, hospitals. Uh, the program was, as it, the, the, the phrase went, uh, killing mouths unworthy of eating and lives unworthy of living. And Galen gave this sermon that condemned the practice and reminded the audience in the church uh, that murder was still against both German law and God's law. He was known as an opponent of the regime for quite a while before that. Uh, and a story that was told about him, uh, and we're not sure whether he actually said this or it was just a joke that Germans liked so much they believed that he would have said it. Um, he was giving a sermon in probably 1937 or 38, and he criticized the educational programs of the Hitler Youth. A Nazi in the congregation jumped up, interrupted him, outraged, saying, how can a man without children dare to speak about education? Von Galen responded, sir, I am not going to tolerate any criticism of our Fuhrer in my church. <laughs> Which I think is kind of clever. Now, he will end up avoiding arrest. He'll, he'll end up out of uh, the, the clutches of the Nazis until after the war. Um, so he survives, uh, not by a lot. But um, his name is certainly on a list uh, that had the Nazis won the war, they would certainly have gone after him. And many, many, many other clergymen are persecuted by the Nazis. Catholic, Protestant, Jehovah's Witness, obviously Jewish. Uh, there's even a, a pastor's block at the concentration camp at Dachau. Um, so it's, it's fairly serious. Um, <clears throat> we had come to 1939, and I want to just say a few things about uh, humor in wartime and give you a sense of how that feels and, uh, or what it, what it sounds like, again, told by ordinary people. If we go to the next. For a lot of Germans, the war, especially from 1942 onward, is characterized by a huge amount of suffering for the civilian population uh, in ways that we didn't see in the First World War. And the most obvious of that is the, the air war against German cities. Uh, and so making jokes at the expense of your government in this kind of atmosphere is incredibly dangerous. Um, but as the Gestapo records show us, was also incredibly common. People simply had to vent about the way the war was going, especially once the war started turning against Germany. Um, now, one way you could make a safer joke uh, would be to maybe not make any kind of reference to your own country's leadership, but make fun of, say, your allies. Um, and when Italy joined the war on the German side, there were plenty of opportunities to <laughs> make jokes about the Italians and their armed forces. Uh, when the Wehrmacht High Command received word that Italy had joined the war, one general opined, oh no, that will cost us an extra 10 divisions. When he was informed that Italy was actually fighting on Germany's side, he said, oh, make that 20. <laughs> That's a safer one, but it does become more dangerous. So one of the dynamics of the war is that the Nazi, it, it is not a fully Nazified society in a lot of ways. There are parallel states operating. You've got the old German state that pre-existed 1933 with the army and the judiciary and the police and the post office and the railroads. But you also have the party organization, the Nazi organization, which has the Sturmabteilung, the SA. 
Hitler's black-suited uh, Schutzstaffel, the SS. You've got parallel party organizations for diplomacy. The SS and the five-year plan, or four-year plan, sorry, are running entire sectors of the economy. The concentration camp system is being integrated into the economy. Unpaid labor, making all kinds of things for the war effort and, uh, and perhaps not. And so there's a struggle between those two branches of the state to end up coming out in control for, for supremacy. And in the end, the radicalization of the conditions of total war will end up making that rivalry even more intense. And that plays out in a lot of ways in the repression against the people. So that the Nazi part of the state eventually establishes its own supremacy over the other parts of the state. This included in the judicial system. Uh, in 1934, Hitler decreed the creation of a Volksgerichtshof, uh, the People's Court which could prosecute people for crimes of all sorts, including sedition uh, or defeatism or uh, even more spurious accusations. And the Volksgerichtshof could be in incredibly savage, and you could run afoul of it much more easily uh, than the regular judicial system. Um, I'll describe to you uh, how that uh, looks. Uh, right. Um, in 1943, a woman working in an armaments factory in Berlin, whose husband had died on the Eastern Front, uh, had gotten in the habit of making jokes on the job, um, jokes that directly uh, aimed at the power structure of the Nazi state. One day she made this joke. Hitler and Goering are standing on top of the Berlin radio tower. Hitler says he wants to do something, to put a smile on Berliners' faces. So Goering turns to him and says, why don't you jump? <laughs> For telling this joke, she was hauled in front of the People's Court, was tried for sedition, was sentenced to death, and was guillotined within a month of having told it. Um, so again, you've got to pick your, uh, uh, your targets as carefully as you possibly could. But in the des desperation of uh, the war situation, uh, the need to, to, to let off steam and, and tell uh, uh, things that would make people laugh um, is almost... Uh, unbearably uh, uh, strong. This includes a, a, a very interesting type of joke that actually has pretty profound um, theological overtones to it, uh, which I wouldn't have expected. And uh, there's two versions of it. I'm going to tell both of them because we've got a little time. Um, the first one, uh, this was going around already in the 1930s, um, and the Gestapo was aware of it. And they actually had a guidebook in indicating what sorts of jokes were dangerous enough to, to prosecute. And this was included uh, as one of them. So, two pictures, one of Hitler and one of Goering, are hanging on the wall of the school, and there's a space left in the middle. A teacher asks, what should we use to fill the gap? A pupil stands up and says, a picture of Jesus. And the teacher says, what? Well, the Bible says he was nailed up between two criminals. <laughs> Which is kind of clever, actually. Another one that was actually told by a priest named Josef Müller. Uh, he was posted to a western city, first uh, Freiburg and then Münster, and then um, where did he finally tell this joke? Um, I think he's in a little village near the Dutch border. Here's how the joke goes. A mortally wounded soldier is about to die and calls a nurse. He says, nurse, I'm going to die as a soldier, and I'd like to know for whom I've given my life. The nurse answers, you are dying for the Führer and the German people. The soldier asks, can the Führer come to my bedside? 
The nurse says, no, that's not possible, but I'll bring you a picture of it. The soldier tells her to put it on the right-hand side of his bed and then says, I was in the Luftwaffe. So the nurse brings him a picture of Göring, puts it to the left of the bed. Then the soldier says, now I can die like Jesus. <laughs> that got him arrested and prosecuted for sedition, uh, and he too uh, was uh, put to death, uh, dying in a concentration camp north of Berlin. Uh, so the limits to what you can do and what uh, you can say. Um, we're about to hear a song uh, that is an interesting one. I think it's a pretty good song, actually, too. Escape alles vorüber. It was a big hit on German radio. It was produced with the cooperation of the propaganda ministry. They certainly had to give it permission, otherwise it wouldn't have been broadcast. But Goebbels thought that the way the words worked would be to give the German people this a song that talks about holding on, making it through. Um, I think it's fair to say a lot of Germans saw it in a very different way, as in, this is going to pass. At some point, the horror will end. So, es geht vor alles vorüber, es geht alles vorbei. Um, there is uh, 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 one last joke I'll tell you, and then we'll uh, go to the uh, uh, to, to concluding remarks here. Um, this is one that uh, was being told nationwide in Vienna, Cologne, Berlin, and it was becoming common enough in 1943, 1944, that uh, the Gestapo got really worried about it. And it goes like this. Hitler and his chauffeur are driving through the country when there's a crash. They've run over a chicken. Hitler says to his chauffeur, I'll go tell the farmer. I'm the Fuhrer. He'll understand. Two minutes later, Hitler comes up rubbing his behind from where the farmer had kicked him in the butt. The two men drive on, and in a short time, there's another crash. This time, they've run over a pig. Hitler tells his chauffeur, you go in this time. The chauffeur obeys. But it's an hour before he comes out of the farmer's house. And when he does, he's drunk, and he's carrying a basket full of sausages and other gifts. Hitler can't believe his eyes. What did you tell that farmer, he asks. The chauffeur says, nothing special. I just said, Heil Hitler, the swine is dead. <laughs> And that could get you arrested too, but it's so common the Gestapo can't catch everybody who's saying it. <laughs> All right, to the song. Um, es geht alles vorüber. Uh, either it's a song about holding on or it's a song that's, this is soon going to be over. Um, it was a very popular song, but like a lot of songs played on German radio, it was also listened to by Allied soldiers, and the BBC decided it would be a brilliant idea to record subversive lyrics to the tune and broadcast it back into German. Um, and so what they did is they hired, uh, so the original lyrics, everything will pass, everything will be through, two people in love will always stay true, it's really savvy. Uh, they hired a German Jew who'd emigrated to London, Lucy Mannheim, who sang a revised version of the song for the German language program of the BBC. It goes like this, everything will pass, everything will be through, first goes Adolf Hitler, then the party goes too. Every year December is followed by a May, first Adolf Hitler will leave, then his henchmen will go away. <laughs> Anyway, you can, you can take it as your, uh, however you would like to, to listen to it, but maybe we should move to this and then you can uh, think about how the lyrics might have worked in the late stages of the war for people who'd lived through the experiences um, that they had. Before we sing this final song, I would like to um, thank those who are joining me up here. This is Aaron Carney, a junior music major and Amelia Siegler, a senior music major, 
will be leaving us. Um, and then my um, dear friend and colleague, Susan McDaniel, um, who has, well, helps us daily in the music department. She's an incredible musician. Um, and the last thing I'd like to say, I don't think, I don't think La Eifler will mind, is to say that, that Aaron and Amelia will be performing in the music theater workshop uh, performances on Halloween and the Saturday following Halloween in this very room at 7.30. So if that interests you, please join us. Oh yes, admission is free, and there will be treats provided by the Garaventa Center on the Saturday evening performance. Just thought I'd mention that. So here's a little Escape Alice for Riva.
I don't have any overarching conclusion to that. Um, <laughs> but maybe, do we have time for a couple of questions? Does anybody have any for any of us? Yeah. Yeah, there, there's a song I remember hearing called The Atlantis in Fire. Yeah. And is that from this period? No, it's much older. It's a 19th century song um, and about police repression. Um, and it was very popular during the 1848 revolution. Um, thought is free, no prison can hold your thoughts. And obviously during the Nazi era, people would sing it too. Um, it could also get you in trouble uh, because <laughs> the Nazi state is about many things, but free thought is not one of them. Um, but yeah, it's a great song. Yeah, I should probably have mentioned, the book I actually took a lot of this from is by a, a German named Rudolf Herzog, um, and it was actually originally in German. Uh, it's called Dead Funny, Humor, Humor in Hitler's Germany. Uh, and in the last chapter, he talks a lot about that, the post-war uh, mythologizing and demythologizing of Hitler. Um, and Hogan's Heroes is the most absurd example. Um, can you imagine the pitch session for that in Hollywood? Uh, yeah, I've got this idea for a sitcom in a German prison camp and yet it was on TV for years. Um, I, I think there's a danger there, but he, he talks about this. Laughing at the Nazis either trivializes them or it humanizes them. And uh, Herzog makes a claim, I don't know if I want to buy it 100%, but I think there's something to it, that laughing at Hitler, laughing at the Nazis, actually deconstructs some of the mythology of superhero-ness that they sort of acquired for various reasons during and after the war. Uh, the other interesting thing about Hogan's Heroes that many people don't know, all the German characters in that, uh, Colonel Klink, uh, Sergeant Schultz, um, whatever the SS uh, Borhalter, all those guys were cabaret stars from the 20s and 30s. They're all Jewish. They'd all fled um, uh, during or uh, before or during the war. Uh, so um, yeah, the guy that played Burkhalter was this famous Jewish character actor who, who could do voices and all kinds of stuff in Vienna. Um, so I don't know if that's answering your question, but I think it's, a, it's obviously you have to, it has to be done right. You can't be careless when you're making fun of the Nazi period because it's so horrible. On the other hand, there is something about if you turn them into these supermen of evil, nothing more evil than, than, than Hitler because he's this abstraction. Then he's not even really human like the rest of us, and we don't need to worry about those kind of tendencies that might be in other normal-ish folks. Does that... They were, as far as I know, sarcastic, but yeah, not funny. They were really, I mean, some of the members of the White Rose Group in Munich had actually been soldiers on the Eastern Front, and they knew what was being done in the name of the German people, and that's really, that was the heart, that you need to understand, you know, fist to the face of the people, what's happening. Um, some of the passages get a little sarcastic, but they, they really don't, as far as I know. I could be, I'm not a scholar of social but I don't think they do. Jeff, you could squeeze in your question. Oh, sure. I just wondered, I'm wondering uh, if you look at the Austrian conditions, mm -hmm. if there's a difference say, between uh, uh, the ability to express 
Uh, ability is probably the wrong word because the Gestapo is there too, but the humor is different, and I didn't spend any time on it, but Herzog does talk about that. that the Austrians are really welcome, in most cases, the Anschluss in 1938, but quickly discover that being attached to Germany means being ruled by Germans, and they don't actually like that very much. Uh, so a lot of the jokes are about stuck-up Prussians doing stupid things. Um, so there is some aspect of that. But I think, I, I know for, for a fact that um, uh, an older gentleman who used to be a professor at the Technical University in Graz had grown up in a little village, he's passed away now, but uh, north of Linz, a little town of about 1,200 people. Um, and the Catholic priest there in 1939 uh, had taught the young kids that they should listen to Radio Vatican and other foreign broadcasters. And in 1940, the Gestapo drove all the way up. There was no paved road at that point. Uh, all the way 40 miles up north of Linz and arrested the guy, and the village of Gutau had no priest for the rest of the war. Um, so the reach of the police is not much different in Austria as it is in Germany. Uh, the guy survived the war. He was in a camp. But, uh, so. All right, we have amazing minds and hearts at University of Portland, and you come up with an idea, and two professors dive in and say, and let's bring in the students as well. So I would uh, really appreciate you giving them a big hand. for a few minutes. We have about 116 more programs coming up this year, and two, two more of the programs are specifically um, addressing that humor initiative. Uh, we, humor and the St. John's Bible uh, is, is coming up in February, and then um, God Laughing at Humans from the Iliad to the Onion is coming up uh, in February. So uh, check those out. And uh, thanks for coming out tonight.